Okay, are you ready for the question that he posed for us to be wrestling with? You're gonna wanna write this down if you don't have it in your notes already. Is your lifestyle driving your faith or is your faith driving your lifestyle? Is your lifestyle driving your faith or is your faith driving your lifestyle? I like how mom's like, last week was good. (laughs) Did you guys hear what I had to say? It was so good, you guys. It really was, I think I had seven pages of notes and I still need to get the podcast because of how much was coming out that I just couldn't keep up with writing out. So you really do want to go back, listen, listen and then take notes, listen again. It really, it was a full one. But what I really appreciate about dad's question is that especially in this time as a family that we're moving into the celebration of Hanukkah, which we all know is not a feast that we were told we have to obey, right? But it is something we get to honor because that's something that was passed down. It's something that comes in our heritage, something that that those that went before us fought for to release us into a place to be able to, to, to honor. And so with that, I think about like the faith that it took to make a stand to say, these are the decisions I am going to make. This is the fight I'm going to engage in. The faith that it took to say the temple that is being desecrated, I am going to stand in a position to take that back. Could you imagine if the reverse were happening? You see the desecration happening and it's kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know, that's a lot. It's a lot of people to try and take down with like just a knife. I don't know if I'm gonna really, I don't, my faith is too small for that. But we have family that went before us. What I appreciate about our family is that we have a mother and father who've gone before us and have said, we're gonna be a family that tears down everything that we know of him, everything that we thought he was, the faith that we thought we operated in, and we're going to be a family that learns to carry his name and permeate his culture. A family like maybe the Maccabees. Can you think of the family that went before us that was able to stand in a place that brought a lineage that uh, we would be different? If he, well, this really, that was fun. And everybody stand up. We're going to switch things up. But in this night season, as he exposes the deception that we've been in, that has kept us from operating in his culture, we sit here tonight in a position of I don't know. Write that at the top of your paper. I don't know. Anything that comes out is, is all new. It's all new. It's all something to grab onto. It's something that we've never known before. It's in us, but it's not anything that we've ever really operated in because of the deception that we were under. And it takes a mother and a father to stand in a place to say, I don't know, and expose and dismantle all of the things that we were passed down the heritage that we were given in order to give us the heritage he wanted us to receive. So as a family that stands in a place of passion, passion is what sets us on a a path that can release us to operate in his culture. The passion that says, I'm not going to just sit aside and just take what was given to me and just, that's his word. That's him. That's how he operates. A passion to find out the truth of our heritage that passion, that lack of complacency as we get further and further of the lifestyle of complacency and passiveness, 
as we lay that down, we are obtaining a heritage to walk as a people who will be led by our faith. That our faith is what will produce the lifestyle that we're living out, which will usher in that culture of heaven. So tonight, let's stand as a family that's concerned about those that are coming after us. A family that's concerned about legacy. Not what I've known, not protective of all the things that I was taught, but the ones that will stand in a place to say, those that are coming after me, this is who I'm doing this for. The change in my life and those that are coming that I don't ever want them to be trapped in the, in the traditions of old. That legacy is what we stand for. A family that is going to stand on his traditions to honor his ways and obey his commands. So, Dad, as you come up here tonight, we just want to thank you because the position that you take in our family is one of absolute freedom that leads us into a place of covenant that we can be bound to him, and we are just really grateful for that. Thank you. Um, Derek already said it, but if you missed last week, even if you were here last week, you need to listen to the podcast and just let that message rest on your spirit um, because it really was very profound and very simple as far as where Yahweh has us at. And we're going to continue tonight with Acts 15, and I put kind of an outline up here of what we're going to do. Um, I want to start off tonight with some uh, prophetic direction that I've been stirred about and that I've been feeling and Derek kind of talked about just the, the, the abounding grace that we've experienced. And I say that in quotations because we've gotten so off track and so out of line that the father is bringing, he's bringing us back into order. And when a father brings order, it's not usually very fun. And he brings confinement and restrictions. And when he's talking about cloud line and boundaries, Yahweh's bringing us back into a very confined narrow path okay and so I almost feel like any chance I get to talk to any of you I'm going to give some fatherly restrictions like some some prophetic direction to keep us on the narrow path because if you want to stay on a narrow path you can't get distracted okay so what what's been stirred and I want you guys to hear this because Ultimately, this is what he's been having us do is prepare. And what the Spirit's been saying is there's an expectation of preparation. An expectation that you would be in a state of preparation, a state of preparedness all the time. That's expected. And the reason why he said that is because, and, and I'm going to tell you how he, how he told me, the directive he gave me was, if somebody is in crisis or they have an emergency that they could have prepared for to avoid and they want to bring you into it, your answer will be no. <laughs> huh? Oh, it's been... Listen, let me, let me say this again because it's, it's... And I encourage all of you to operate this way. There's an expectation of preparation. Everything that we've been discipling is preparing you. So when I asked that question last week, does your lifestyle drive your faith or does your faith drive your lifestyle? It's challenging your state of preparation. 
And if you don't know, then you're in a state of unpreparedness. And when the crisis comes or the emergency comes and you have no oil to produce to navigate that situation, don't come talk to me and try to get me to jump into the ditch with you to help you through that, navigate through that crisis. Because my father said, you will say no. And the reason why is because he wants me focused on certain things, not distracted with other people's emergencies and other people's crisis when they could have prepared, but they didn't. And I mean, we've been in a season for a decade of when people are in crisis, we respond. Crisis, we respond. Right? There's an emergency, we go. We respond. Go. Send me. That's what we did. Right? But now we're in a season where he's saying, I need you to focus. I need you to stay on the narrow path. And I don't want you off that narrow path, even if there's an emergency or a crisis and somebody's screaming for help. Now, I'm not saying if they prepared for it and there's an emergency. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we've been preparing. We've been posturing you, discipling you, equipping you on how to handle the confrontation that's going to come at you because of your name. Because of who you've been called to be, there's going to be things that confront you, and we've been preparing so when I ask the question last week and I get all fired up and I talk about I can't stand it when people are on their phone, it's because this is what's been stirring. You need to be prepared. So as a father of the house, this is what I'm saying. Don't fail to prepare and then when the trial comes, come, come asking for help or, hey, how do, I, how do I do this? Don't come ask me. Don't come ask my wife. I'm going to extend that to my wife. Okay? And ultimately, all of us should operate like that, which means if we're going to operate like that, that means we have to be prepared. Okay? This is a game changer because I can think of lots of situations where we have discipled and discipled and discipled and prepared and laid it out and laid it out and laid it out, and people don't take heed to that, and then the crisis comes yet again, and we have just responded. Well, Yahweh will not allow. That's a reflection of the calling on this house. He's calling us to a purpose. He's calling us to be postured and prepared for a purpose, and we can't be distracted by the uh, emergencies or the crisis that are going on around us for those that didn't prepare when they could have, when they should have. And I'm, I'm, I encourage all of you to, to operate the same way. <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that? Huh? <laughs> and I'm still, I'm still leaning into this, but I've been super stirred about it because we're entering into a season where we have to be ready. Right? Think about the, the ten virgins and those that had oil and those that didn't. They asked them, can I have some of your oil? And those that had it said, you need to go get your own. Right? So when, the, when I say there's an expectation of preparation, there's going to be discipleship to the degree that needs to happen. But it's not, we need to, move, we need to keep moving forward. Right? We need to keep staying on the narrow path and moving forward. Have you ever been in such a, such a place in your car, such a narrow road that you can't turn around? 
right? This is like, this is like where we're at. We're going forward. We can't, we're either going forwards or backwards, okay? So I would encourage you to go back, listen to last week, even if you were here, um, because it's all preparedness. It's all discipleship. We were going over, um, well, I can't even, I couldn't even tell you, I couldn't outline what we were going over, but we we barely got into Acts 15, and I think it was, we tried to, tried to jump into it way too fast, and it was at the end of the night, so we're going to continue with Acts 15. But I wanted to review uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, which is what? What's Matthew 5? Just yell it out. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Huh? What? <laughs> the fulfillment of the law, right? Yeshua himself is talking about his purpose and what he came to do. I guarantee you, he could have been distracted by crisis, by things that were emergencies, and he just moved forward according to his purpose. Okay? Matthew five seventeen through 20 is the fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to abolish, but he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is important because everything we're doing, remember, we're equipping you with a paradigm or a line of thinking on how to articulate the truth in the word. Okay? And we're doing it in this order specifically because Acts 15, if you were to engage in, in a, a debate or somebody confronts you on this whole issue and they're talking about Acts 15, you have to have it reconciled in your heart, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. You have had to have wrestled with that to be able to engage somebody when they come talk to you about Acts 15 or Apostle Paul. Okay? So Matthew 5 is the first one. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. What is that? Right? And I'm asking these questions because we're talking about being postured and prepared, right? So we've been talking about this for several months. Huh? The Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is the Great Commission, which he said, the last thing that he told them to do was teach them to obey my commands. He's talking about the Torah, right? And he also stressed the fact in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, he stressed the fact of how important it is what you teach. It's not only what you do or not do, but what you teach or not teach, right? So, that's the, that's the precept that we're building upon when we go and talk about Acts 15. The fact that the law is to be fulfilled, not abolished, and there's an emphasis on teaching. Okay? Does that make sense? So I want you guys to turn to Acts 15, verse 1. And just to give you a little bit of background on this, I know we dove into it super quick at the end last week. But just to give you guys kind of context of what was going on, at this time, there was different, we'll call it uh, different branches of Judaism. Kind of like denominations now, they have different sets of beliefs. There was different branches of Judaism. And in this context, you have people teaching, okay, this is part of the, this is a big part of the backdrop, is you had one branch of Judaism teaching others about salvation and how they go about salvation. 
That's a big deal, right? If, if you're teaching somebody about salvation, you better be correct, right? And so they're teaching a certain mode of salvation. Other people heard about this and were complaining about it. They had issue with it. And so they called on Paul and Barnabas to come in and, and call a council meeting so they could figure out the correct way to go about this and disseminate that information to everybody else, Okay. And so this issue was, uh, this was a very heated issue. The different branches that were debating this, it was, a very, it was a very controversial, heated issue. Okay? But it starts in verse 1. It says, Now some men coming down from Judea were teaching the brothers. They were teaching. Now, when you, like I said, you go back to Matthew 5, and you hear how fired up Yeshua is about if you do the law and teach the law, right, you will have eternity in heaven. If you don't do the law and you teach others not to do the law, you have no place in heaven. Okay? It says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay? The reason we're in Acts 15, again, is because this has been so misunderstood and so misinterpreted and taken out of context that people will often use Acts 15 to say that the law has been done away with, okay? Remember, we're getting at the greatest lie, and this is a battleground for the greatest lie to take place. This is where it's taken root, the Jerusalem Council, and you'll hopefully see how ridiculous it is when you really look at it and break it down and see how somebody tries to, to found in a, a debate or a belief that the law has been done away with based off of these verses. Okay? So you have this branch of Judaism, and they refer to themselves as, as the, uh, the circumcised. Because their belief was, in order for you to have salvation, you have to be circumcised. Okay? So they're taking one commandment out of the Torah, and they're saying, you have to do this in order to have salvation. And ultimately, what they were saying is, you have to convert. This was the common way to convert to, Jew, to be a Jew. You have to be a Jew to be saved. Right? The word says neither Jew nor Gentile. Right? Neither Jew nor Gentile. It's not about one or the other. It's about the one new man. But this branch was saying you have to convert to be a Jew in order to have salvation. Okay? And so Paul and Barnabas had a big argument and debate with them. They appointed Paul and Barnabas with some others from among them to go up to Jerusalem to the emissaries and the elders about this issue. So they were sent on their way by the Antioch community. They were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the community and the emissaries and the elders, and they reported all that God had done in helping them. But some belonging to the party of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the Torah of Moses. Now, part of the argument that this branch was articulating was that they had a belief system or a, an oral tradition or an ethic. When it talks about the custom of Moses, it's not talking about the law. It's talking about an ethical system that they developed based off of that. 
okay? So we're not talking about the law of Moses. We're talking about a people who developed ethics based off the law of Moses, and their ethic was you have to be a Jew to be saved, okay? The emissaries and the elders were gathered together to examine this issue. So they basically, the Jerusalem council was like the leadership of the region. Anytime they had a debate, they would go there, they would make a decision, and then they would put that information out for everybody. After much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God chose from among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the message of the good news and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving them the Ruach HaKodesh, just as he also did for us. He made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts through faith. Why then do you put God to the test by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, this, this verse right here is, is the absolute reason why people will say the Torah and the law has been done away with. Because Peter stood up and said to the Pharisees, why are you putting this yoke that neither my ancestors or us now can bear? We can't carry it. And he's, he's talking to the Pharisees, and they're, they're referring to a law, and Peter is referring to a yoke that they can't bear. Can you see how the connection is made to where people would say, no, no, according to Acts 15, Peter said, that's a yoke that nobody can bear. Okay? But what Peter was actually referring to is you cannot bear the yoke of having to obey the law in order to be saved. Do you remember when mom was talking last week and she was talking about Apostle Paul saying, these laws, you need to obey them. There's primary weighty laws that you should obey so that you can get to synagogue so that you can be circumcised eventually. Not get yourself 100% right before him so that you can be saved. That would be the equivalent today of a drug addict or a prostitute coming into the building and saying, no, no, go deal with your issues before you come and meet him. Which we've seen it happen. Okay, I remember being in a service one day. When I was in law, this, this should fire everybody up. When I was in law enforcement, there was a young lady who was involved in the church She was out of the church for several years because she got involved with the wrong crowd and she became addicted to drugs and she was out there uh, prostituting herself and I would see her all the time. I would see her all the time and and I was at Circle K getting gas one day and, and somebody said my name and it was her. And she was right in the middle of an interaction and I said, who are you, who are you here with? Because she was freaking out and she pointed outside, there was four dudes outside. And she's like, I owe them, which I knew what that meant. I knew what was probably about to transpire. And so I said, no, I'm taking you to your mom's house. She came to church the next day on a Sunday. She was addicted to meth. She was prostituting herself. She hadn't been in the, in the church in several years. And she came in and she laid her drugs on the altar. And she, she, she's doing great now. Her life has changed now, right? This was several years ago. And we had family members criticize and say, you're going to ruin what we have going on here. Don't bring your mess in here. You're going to ruin what we got going on in here. Right? So essentially they're saying, get yourself right before you come in here. And so you don't mess it up. 
right? That's what these Pharisees were saying to the Gentiles. You need to convert and get yourself right before you can be in our, in our community, in our presence, Right? That's what they were saying. But the apostles stood up, the disciples stood up and said, no, no, there's some things they should deal with, yes, but that's not a matter of salvation. Right? When somebody comes in, you address what's going on at the time, but they need to get involved in the community. Right? That's what these apostles were worried about. They were, they were concerned about reconciling Jew and Gentile, whereas this first branch of Judaism was saying, you are a Gentile and you can't have salvation. It's all about the Jews. So can you see how this changes the paradigm when you have people that are connecting, they're connecting one verse, picking it out, and they're connecting it to verse one and saying that yoke that Peter was talking about must mean the law that the first branch of Judy, uh, of Jews were talking about. Is this, make, is this making sense? But the disciples, the apostles, they came in Right After traveling through different regions and, and, and seeing Gentiles saved and seeing Gentiles filled with the Holy Spirit, they came in and said that you cannot force them to convert to be a Jew in order to have salvation because we can all have salvation. And there's not two sets of laws, one for the Gentiles and one for the Jews. There's one Torah for everyone. It's for Israel and the foreigner, which is the Gentile. Does this make sense? It's, it's such a, uh, when people try to use this as a basis of the law being done away with, they're basically, they're, they're putting walls up that Yeshua died to take down. We have to understand that when we engage in this type of, of uh, dialogue with people or when we're confronted with this. He said, but instead we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Yeshua in the same way as they are. The whole group became silent. We're listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were describing in detail all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, Jacob answered, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described how God first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. The word of the prophets agree as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. I will rebuild its ruins and, and I will restore it so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, namely all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Therefore, I judge not to trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but to write to them to abstain. Okay, this is verse 20. This is important. But I'm writing to them to abstain from the contamination of idols so he's talking about idolatry from sexual immorality and from what is strangled and from blood. So he's talking about what they eat, sexual immorality, and idolatry. Okay, Those were the three concerns that the apostles had for the Gentiles concerning two communities coming together. This is... This is part of the, the ridiculous part when you really begin to understand this is a lot of Christianity will take the position that we don't have to obey the law because we are only bound to the three laws in Acts 15. Does that make any sense to anybody that the only law that we would be held to is don't be sexually immoral, don't eat food that's been strangled, and don't, don't, 
be in idolatry. But everything else is fair game. (laughs) So they'll say, the law's been done away with. We only have to do these things now. But guess what? These three things are core to the Torah in Leviticus 17 and 18. These laws that they're referring to, they didn't just make it up. Right? He's referring to the law. But a lot of people will say, well, we don't have, it's, the law's been done away with because we only have to do this. But this is the law. Okay? In Acts 15, verse 21, like people just ignore this part. It says, for Moses, for. So this, this is crazy. How many of us would be like, what does for mean? Right? We typically would just skip over that. For Moses. For Moses. What does that mean? The word, the word for is saying regarding everything that we've just been talking about, it's like because of this, then this. Okay? So because of everything they've been talking about, he wanted them to know that Moses from ancient generations has, has had in every city those who proclaim him since he is read in all the synagogues every Shabbat. Okay, so basically, like mom was explaining last week, what you have is a situation where the apostles were concerned with two communities coming together, right, out of the ministry of reconciliation. It's neither Jew nor Gentile, but these two communities have to come together. And the issue in Acts 15 is not whether the law is relevant or not. It's how the law is applied concerning two communities coming together. Okay? But this will be used because they'll take certain verses and make a connection between them that's not there. No part of this debate, no part of this council was, does the Torah apply? Is it still alive or not? Is it fulfilled or abolished? That's not even in here. But because Peter said, you are trying to put a yoke on us that our ancestors couldn't bear and we couldn't bear, that's where people will get that from, okay? But in verse 21, they basically end the Jerusalem council. They conclude it by saying that as long as the Gentiles prioritize these three things, right, because they were in a pagan culture, they were going to the pagan temples, they were eating food that was strangled, they were engaged in uh, prostitution and idolatry, right, worshiping different gods. They were engaged in all that, in, in all of those things. And so basically what the disciples were concerned with is we want you to focus on these three core Torah laws to get you out of paganism, right, get you out of paganism so that you could reconcile with the Jewish community and eventually get into synagogue where you would, where you would hear the law of Moses preached every Shabbat. So in the, in the beginning, so the context for this whole thing, right, to sum it up is, and if you're tracking, we're, we're building precept upon precept. So in Matthew 5, people will say, oh, he fulfilled it, so that means it's done away with. We already dealt with that. We already know that doesn't, when you really look at it, doesn't make any sense, right? But you can see how if that's your foundational belief, if that's your conviction, you're going to interpret Acts 15 a certain way. You're going to go, oh, yeah, Peter affirmed that when he said, you know, this is a yoke we can't bear, right? 
So we're building precept upon precept. And then you have here, you have people teaching. You have people teaching and there's an issue because what they're teaching is that you have to, the law saves you. Okay. This is a, this is a big picture is that the law, you don't fulfill the law to get saved, right? You obtain salvation through Yeshua. And then out of your devotion to him, you have a satisfaction to obey the law. Okay? When you enter into a covenant with him, you should, not only out of duty, but out of devotion, you should be driven to want to obey the Father's instructions. Right? And so the apostles were, were facilitating this because they knew you're trying to put a yoke on these Gentiles that they can't, you're trying to get them to fulfill the law in order to gain salvation. Right? Where they're saying, we've seen Yeshua and the Holy Spirit give salvation to Gentiles. Now we just have to get them into the community so they can go to synagogue, so they can learn the law of Moses, and eventually they would desire to get circumcised. Does that make sense? That's what mom was alluding to last week. Did you want to say something? It is finished. And you can see how, and and we'll get into Apostle Paul at some point, because that's the third battleground that people will use to say that the law has been abolished. But when you really think about it, we're, Yahweh's had us going back to the original intent. So naturally, we're going from a state of grace and just ultimate liberal freedom and, you know, you don't have to obey the law. It's been done away with and it's all by grace. And he's, he's bringing us back into a narrow road. And you can see why there's this confined path that we're on. Right? To where he would say, you ha- I expect you to be prepared to the degree that if you come at me with your crisis, I'm going to say, well, what did you do about it? How, how did you prepare for that? And if you didn't, I don't have time for that. So as they concluded, right, they concluded by putting an exclamation point on this that the, the laws of Moses have been preached in the synagogue every Shabbat. And that's, that's, where, that's what they're sending the Gentiles into after they break them off by these three Torah core laws from Leviticus 17 and 18. They're referring to it. After they separate them from their paganism, then they can reconcile with the Jewish community and eventually get to synagogue where the law of Moses is preached. Right? So after they conclude with that, then they send them out with a letter to go let everybody know that this is what the decision was. So tell, tell me how in Acts 15 it's, it affirms that the law has been abolished. Right? Can anybody show me where it says the law's been abolished in here? But you can see where if you pick if you pick verse one and then you also go to verse nine and you just connect the two, and you're already operating under a false assumption from Matthew five, and you took one simple word out of those four verses. Right, And you're basing your whole belief off of that. And you can see why we get so fired up about saying that this, this issue demands that you wrestle with it. 
It demands that you wrestle with it because you can live your whole life based off of a belief or a false conviction that will get you to the point to where you meet Yeshua at the end and he says, I don't even know who you are. But I did all these things in your name. I did, I cast out demons and I did all these things in your name, delivered people, healed people. And he'll say, I don't even know you. Right? Did you want to come up here with me? No? (laughs) I don't know if you wanted to reiterate anything from last week. I don't know if I can reiterate last week, but ultimately Acts 15, what I'm hearing is, is that it would be an absolute contradiction, right? To say you only have to obey these things so that you can go to synagogue to learn about everything beyond these things. Because if the purpose was to get them to a place to bring them in, and it says what bringing them in would do, which is to learn Torah, because what are the Torah portions? That's what we're doing. That was their weekly. It wasn't a pastoral five-point grace sermon. It was already preordained every single Shabbat what they were going to be going over. And it was all based on Torah. So why would they say, look, this is, this is a yoke you can't bear, which is the law, so that you can go to synagogue to learn about the yoke you just can't bear. Like when you read it in context, it's so obvious what was happening. So another example to make it um, that I gave last week would be looking at this from a, um, from a very practical perspective, right? So we have a, let's just say kingdom heirs, a Gentile community. Is that all right to say that? <laughs> and then we met a community that's been Hebraic for 35 years over in New Mexico. So let's just say a more, on the more Jewish side, is that all right to say that? I mean, that's not the reality, but it would be like, that community arguing and stiff arming us saying (laughs) they eat pepperoni pizza so they're not allowed to be here and then so so that would be them stiff arming us and so then in order for the two groups to be able to figure this out because gentiles did not have the history or even know the torah so they have no concept of how to even operate in a synagogue. So just like us, I had no concept of Yom Teruah. I had no concept of even the honor to be given to the word, right? When we were dancing with the word, I had no concept about a tallit or a covering. I had no concept of any of that. And so this group was basically saying, they cannot come in here until they basically are able to obey all the laws. And all the council was saying was, how can they if they don't even know them? We at least need to get them into the community. So it would be like a group of leaders met and decided that the, like the New Mexico family would decide to say, all right, we're going to let the pork thing go so that they can come in. But it wouldn't be for the purpose 
to just say, we're going to figure this out so you can stay as you are and we're going to stay as we are. Because ultimately, the Judaism side of things needed to learn about how to operate the way the Gentiles understood in the sense that you are saved by Yeshua, not saved by your works. But the Gentiles are not supposed to be walking like it's only Yeshua and I don't have to do anything. So we would learn from them on how to walk the way that he asked us to walk. So, um, so, uh, so does that make sense? So it would be like a group of leaders would be getting together to try to figure out, can you guys at least know this, this, and this, or can you stop doing this, this, and this in order to honor the, um, the synagogue, and then at the same time telling that group, okay, there's going to be these things that they're going to abide by because they need to learn about all the rest of them before we can come together. And both groups had to, not necessarily, compromise isn't the right word, but we were trying to bring down that wall that was continuing in two separate places or keeping two separate groups apart. Does that make sense? So again, to reiterate, so Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, there's an there's a issue that needs to be settled. The issue is not the law still applies or the law no longer applies. That is not the issue. The issue is written Torah compliance versus rabbinic tradition compliance. Okay, so man's tradition versus the father's instruction. And how do we apply the Father's instruction to Gentiles. Rabbinic tradition says, in order to comply, you have to convert to Judaism in order to be saved, right? This was what was being taught. That's, this is a yoke nobody can bear, okay? Oral tradition, all the extra laws that people interpreted and said, you know what, because of this written Torah law, I, th I interpret it this way, and that means you have to be circumcised in order to be saved if you're a Gentile. Whereas that doesn't say that anywhere in the Torah. There's no Gentile conversion law in the Torah. Okay? Now, it's interesting if you go back to Matthew 5, Verse 19, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, this one shall be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars, you shall never enter the kingdom. How do, how, as a Gentile, how can you and your righteousness exceed that of a Torah scholar, right? These are scholars, how can, how can I, as a Gentile, exceed these professional Torah followers? How can I exceed their righteousness, right? It's because I find salvation in Yeshua. I get saved and born again, and then I have a desire because it's written in my heart now, right? This is rabbinic compliance says you have to get circumcised. That's not a heart-driven issue. That's, oh, somebody told me I have to do this, so I have to do it. Otherwise... I won't see eternity in heaven. Does that make sense? This is how, this was the issue that was at play. They had Matthew 5 in mind, 
right? You're trying to, you're, you're cutting off the ability for Gentiles to exceed Pharisaic righteousness if you make them do this because they can't, the Torah can't be written on your heart if a man's forcing you to do it. So I just want to challenge and kind of point something. Remember, remember when I was, I think it was last week and we've said this before that you aren't, because the question will be, okay, so then does this mean I have to do this in order to? Okay. That would be operating on this side of the board, which means you're trying to obtain a certain status in your own works, which is going to end you up in religion. That does not mean that you stop there and just say, well, then that means I don't have to do anything. Because the point is that I guess a, qu- a question that I would ask, because I don't even know if I'm going to be able to explain this. I was kind of getting wrecked when he was talking about what you should just at least try to stop doing in order to come to synagogue and what religion is known for. And the, the, the Pharisees stiff arming and what we've become. And I don't mean we as in we, I just mean religion or Christianity has, it's like, History has repeated itself to where now Christianity is the rabbinic traditional compliance and says a man needs to tell you that you need to do this or else. And then when we come along to say, this is amazing. And it's like, well, now we're getting back into legalism when this is freedom. So, and I say that because it's been lofty. Say salvation prayer and then by the fruit of the spirit, and if you speak in tongues, you're saved. I'm not finding that in the scriptures anymore. I'm not saying that there's not fruit, but I'm just saying. So if you operate on this side, salvation, faith in Yeshua should show us separated by this. But we're never taught that if you're saved, you'll abide by the Torah. In fact, you're taught You don't have to even know it or even obey it, which is kind of interesting. And I, and I, and I say that because it, and I know that that might be challenging, but isn't that what the renewed covenant was in the prophets? It says that you will have a heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh and my law will be written on your heart. Yeshua gave us access to allow his instructions that have always been there to come from the inside out versus religion giving us from, giving it to us from the outside in. The only challenge that I have is that I believe that Christianity has turned into the exact same thing where you have a group of people saying, this is what you are to look like and that will show you approved and that means that you're saved when in, but the truth is, is that we would be um, caused to walk. It says in the scriptures in the renewed covenant that we would be caused to walk by his instructions. It means that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not marked by tongues, you're marked by obedience. 
you're marked by being caused to want to be separated. So one of the most powerful things that I feel like that I was talking about last week was we have gotten so far off track that we now believe that instructions are binding and legalistic and pulling us backwards. We were free in grace and you're telling me I have to be bound by instructions. What I'm saying is, is that if you go back to the original beginning, when Mount Sinai happened, which is when the instructions were, were written, and I'm actually going to get into a teaching when the, uh, when, after January starts, that the instructions were actually always there because Abraham followed them. They were just written by the, by the Spirit to Moshe to be given to the Israelites. But what I want to challenge us is, is they had been in slavery. They had been bound. They had been serving man. They had lost their heritage. They had a meal. They had food. They had consistency. Does this sound like something we've known? A meal every week? Consistency? And we're building for man's man. Okay. They get radically delivered out of that, and then they get all of these instructions. The concept is, is could we understand that those instructions were given to slaves in order to know how to walk free? They were bound and in slavery. When they get free, which we can all agree that Egypt was a good thing and that that meant freedom, right? Right after they get freedom, they get a bunch of instructions to teach them how to walk free, to understand what freedom looked like so that they could go to the promised land. And the heart-wrenching thing is it took 40 years for a generation to get that out of their mind that Pharaoh wasn't better. Because they kept saying, we want to go back for the meal. Here's what I'm saying. Fast forward 2,000 years, and we present this truth about following in Torah, and our first response is, that's restriction. That is binding. I was free. But I'm challenging you, were you free? That's the challenge. Were we free if we were in Egypt? It felt like freedom because there was consistency, there was a meal and we were building. We had our instructions and we got it. And there were so many years that had gone by that we had forgotten our heritage. So here we are again. And then we drastically leave Egypt. And we all amen to that. But then when he gave you manna and said it's straight from heaven and it wasn't a cooked meal from a master Now we have to relearn what heaven looks like. Because I thought that the master's provision over here was heavenly. Now, not only is there heaven's manna, you gotta go get it. You have to go collect it. You're hungry, you gotta go eat. Oh, and by the way, you need to collect enough on day six because on day seven, you have to rest. So the challenge is, is have we become a people 
that have been so bound up in Egypt that now when the law is, we have a Mount Sinai moment and the law is given to us, that we actually think that that's restriction. But in reality, it's, it's his instructions on how to be free. The analogy that I gave was covenant. So, my mouth is dry. So, the, the analogy is, is that the mindset of Western culture is before we get married, you're going to have a bachelor's night, and I'm going to have a bachelorette night, and that's our last night of freedom. Right? Because once we get married, I'm bound. We can understand what I'm getting at, but that's real. I am free. I'm defining my freedom by lawlessness, and I like it. But then when I'm in covenant, I am bound by some instructions, some vows, some promises, some adhering to, some submission issues, some partnership stuff. The problem is, is that if you look at it this way, the world would say you are now bound when you were free. But we all know when I say boldly, I was bound and now I am free. Just like what we're doing now. We said we were free and now with all these instructions, I'm bound. I'm just saying, what if you weren't free? That was just lawlessness and now you're bound, which is freedom. That's why Paul can say, I count it all joy that I am a bondservant. I am a slave. The concept is, is you're a slave regardless. What are you a slave to? Do you want to be a slave to this type of freedom? Lawlessness and whatever that freedom is? Or do I want to be a bondservant and a slave to covenant? So the heartbreaking thing is that if we've been so bound up and we think that the vows to covenant are what is restricting, then we've never known what covenant is that brings so much freedom. So it's not about doing it in order to get saved, just like I can't, okay, I can't do more of my vows to get more married. Does that make sense? But can you hear that there are consequences if I don't operate with some of my vows? If I made a promise and then I don't follow through on that promise, we're not as united. We're not as one. We're not as intimate. We're not as fruitful. We're not as, right? There's, there's those aspects, but I'm not more or less married on my breaking. In the old, without Yeshua, if you broke them, then, I mean, that's what happened. Divorce happened. But through Yeshua, I'm not less, if I break a vow, I'm not less married unless he hands me a certificate of divorce. That doesn't mean, though, that there's not consequences if I break a vow that we're going to have to work through. But it's now, or at least what we talked about last week, is that what religion has done has said, this isn't going well, so I'm going to go to a counselor. And then you have this set of arbitrary, I don't know if arbitrary is the right word, but floaty, 
concepts based on a pastor that says this might be a good idea. What's concerning is then, then this is what's happening. You have people telling you, you need to go do this. You need to do this, this, and this. But I'm not going to walk you through how to do that. And this idea that I'm coming up with is kind of a cool idea. That's not, that doesn't feel free to me. That feels confusing. Whereas with what he's showing us is that we know the vows. We know the, I hate saying the, the word rules, but we know the restri- uh, restriction. I mean, I like restrictions, so that's hard for me. <laughs> but like we, we, know, we know, I don't know how to say that. Yeah, they're clear. What'd you say? <laughs> yeah, standard operating procedure. It, it's in the word. It's a non-negotiable. It's not a lofty, and this is what I mean. It gets harder in the renewed covenant because Yeshua comes along and says, well, here are the top two most important laws. Then you got Peter in Acts 15 says, and then also these four in Leviticus are pretty important. And, and then you've got all of the rest of the renewed covenant that says, well, this is how you can love your neighbor. And there's these, and, and then they're all right. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying at least if we could get back to that list, 613 doesn't seem so overpowering because if you take out love your neighbor and then you go over into Galatians, don't owe no man no money. That's a cool idea. It's scriptural. But if I can't owe no man no money because I have a mortgage, can I at least just be like love your neighbor? It's actually easier. Is it freedom? Anyways, I don't know if that's making sense. And the other, the other thing that, um, well, that's never mind. That's so, question for you: If, if Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James came to the Christian church right now, right? If we called the Jerusalem Council and they heard about what was happening and they came to the Christian church right now, they're going to witness compliance with Christian tradition, which then gives you status as the new Israel. Okay, remember everything about replacement theology. It's no longer the Jewish people because, right, replacement theology says they screwed it up, so now they're out and we're in. Okay? So you have a status as like, no, we're the Israel now. And then then that's how you get salvation then you're free from obedience, right? This is what they would see, and they would have an issue with that. They would say, no, it's about the Torah and faith in Yeshua, and through faith in Yeshua, then you get salvation, and then you're free to obey, which he said, you're free to be a bondservant to him, right? You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ, right? You're a slave either way. So which, which slavery brings freedom, right? Which, which I'd rather be a slave to Christ and, and, and have eternal life, right? Than rather be a slave to sin and the wages death, right? But you're a slave either way. But you can see how the apostles would come and sit in a Christian church and they would be like, hold on, hold on. 
you're saying that your status as the new Israel, which means you're elevating your Gentile nature over the Jews, and it's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's about the new man, both of these becoming one. But you're going to say, nope, they're out, we're in. And that's the status that you have to get in order to get salvation so that you can be free to do whatever you want, to be lawless. Right? But when you, like, how crazy, how crazy is this? And I can tell you I've wrestled. If this sounds nuts and you're like, it, I, I bet you somebody in here, it's, it is so ingrained No, we're free from the law. That is so ingrained that you can lay it out. You can lay it out and it'll be like, no, it's just not right. It's not right. Because I've heard this my entire life. I've been taught this my entire life. And I can lay it out like a lawyer, like a case. And you'd be like, nah. But they could, they could come sit in a church right now, and I guarantee you this is the dynamic that would be prevalent. Well, and we have to, when we get into Pauline theology, we'll begin to understand that the concept of the law being done away with was not even during the time of this being written. That was never a factor. I understand it's hard when you're reading Paul because it can get super confusing, but Paul was absolutely Torah observant. There was never a question that you wouldn't obey it. That is a concept of theology that started with Roman Catholicism, 300 AD, that we've adopted as Christians. That that idea of old and new wasn't even around when this was written. He has this written up there. He just erased it. This side of the board said holiness. This side of the board said happiness. And I don't know how real that is today when we have to deal with issues that are between holiness versus happiness. And most of the time, you're going to have false protection and you're going to have concepts playing in order to allow for happiness to come forward instead of holiness. But I, the problem with that is, is if we're not prepared when we meet him, is he concerned about your happiness or your holiness? And that is and that is a really hard thing. It's one thing to amen it, but walking it out is extremely difficult. One way that you'll be able to tell if, if those around you or you yourself are operating in happiness versus holiness is if there's consistency or inconsistency. Because typically when I find when happiness is what's prevalent, the concept of what's being projected in order to allow that happiness to, to continue is one standard over here, but in a different situation, that standard doesn't apply. And so then it's completely inconsistent. And that's what I mean by the concept of these ideas are very inconsistent. And so you have double standards. You have double standards when it comes time to divorce. You have double standards when it comes time to... Um, Uh, infidelity. You have doubles. I mean, okay. He brought up a story that is like super personal because that's part of our, that's part of our, when we were sitting here, we weren't able to. I, the reason why that story is so personal is because when we were sitting right here telling our story, we weren't able to talk about everything. 
So when he brings up something like that, how heartbreaking it is when you have died on a battlefield to want these people to come in. And then the very culture that you bring them into stiffs arm them, stiff arms them and undermines all the work you just did. Why as a law enforcement officer was he able to be like, I'm taking you home. And the church says, send her to jail. <laughs> she never came back. It was all through discipleship that her life is completely transformed. She never came back. And uh, I, I was just having a, well, I don't, I don't even need to necessarily get into that. But um, it's heartbreaking. What, this, this is, can I just like talk? <laughs> this is... This is heartbreaking for, for me in the place that I'm at to wrestle because you begin to see such infidelity. What I mean by that is I'm, I will talk to somebody who claims they are fully married and they are walking completely divorced. So how do we get to a place where... I'm trying to think of how I would say this. How do we get to a place where a community can say, these are the abominable sins? Like you are, you are not to be gay. You cannot do drugs. Like, right? Like you've got this list of like, you that better not come in here. R-rated movies. TV shows, you know, I mean, we went through that whole list of all the, like you, you know, you are not allowed, but I am roasting pork butt for dinner. Now, whether you agree with me or disagree, I'm just saying it's an interesting thing to wrestle because regardless of where you place yourself, it is in the word, but I don't see anything about rated R. Or I don't see anything about these things. I'm not saying that there isn't anything in the word with the things that I listed. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying it's interesting the hills we die on, but we'll compromise on so many other things. And, and we're ruining the one new man. Because we're walking around basically saying, I am so married and I'm counseling all of you because you're heathens and you're, 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 you're not walking right, so you're divorced. And I'm over here claiming like I'm married, literally breaking all of the vows. So it starts to get heart-wrenching when I hear stories like that to remember that we, that we probably celebrated that night as a, as a community and didn't obey any of the food laws or food instructions that are there to keep you healthy, not to restrict you into a place of you were once free and now you're bound. No, you were bound and unhealthy and doing things you weren't supposed to be doing and here's some instructions so that you can live a long life. We probably celebrated the very things that were cutting our life off early while we were pushing away those that though that would have been the Peter saying, can we just get over the drug? Like, flip it. Peter's coming in right now to deal with the Christian church. Can we just stop judging people's lives 
and can we get over the drug addict aspect so that they can come in here to learn on Shabbat what it means to live a fully transformational life instead of a bunch of rules and regulations from the outside? I feel like that's what Peter was doing then and he would do it again, but he wouldn't do it with us. It would be flip-flopped. Yeah, I want, I want to point something out because I, I just want to take it to like a bigger picture level. So Christianity is Protestant, right? Christians are Protestants. And the word, it's from the word protest. From Martin Luther, protested Roman Catholicism. That's why we're called Protestants. Not, not we, but you know what I'm saying. Protestant Reformation, 500 years, right? We've been living in a house that is founded upon Roman Catholicism, which is ultimately founded and built by Constantine and the early church fathers. They built this house, right? And as Protestant people, you've been living in this house and you saw problems with the foundation of the house, so you decided to undergo a 500-year renovation, Does that make sense? So we're like, you know what? We're going to hire this guy, Martin Luther. He's going to help us renovate the, the Roman Catholic house for 500 years. Right? You guys see all the, um, it's, it's Reformation Day, right? 518 years or whatever it is. And what's happening is Christianity is living in this house that's undergone a 500-year renovation founded on Roman Catholicism and Constantine and the early church fathers who all displayed anti-Semitism and replacement theology. And what we're saying is, is instead of continuing to renovate this house, we're going to go abide in the, in the actual house that we were meant to abide in. This one's founded on Torah. The Torah is the foundation, and Yahweh is the foundation, and Yeshua is the door, and you don't have to do any renovations right here. Right? Like this, this revelation is crazy. I heard, a, I heard this black guy say one time, he said, and it just wrecked, it just like wrecked my mind. It gave me this picture because he said, the Reformation was for Catholics, not Africans. <laughs> I was just like, what? It's a different. Okay, so look, the, Re the Reformation, what, what was being protested? If you're a Protestant, why are you a Protestant? What was being protested? Yeah, there's like, there's 95, you know, the guy nailed the 95 thesis on the door at the Roman Catholic Church, right? If you're a Protestant, you're protesting Catholicism, but all you did was renovate the house. They didn't do away with the house. That's why you'll see Christianity celebrating things like Christmas and Advent. Those are, those are Catholic things. They just didn't do away with those things. They kept those. Does that make sense? So when this guy said... The Reformation was for Catholics. He was basically saying, I'm an African. I'm not Catholic. That's not for me. I'm not part of this whole equation. Insert any race. <laughs> well, okay. 
it, it hit me because my ancestors are African. They were forced during the Spanish Inquisition to convert to Catholicism under the threat of death. Now we will kill it. you unless you convert. So when this guy, he didn't, even, he didn't know that, but when he said that, it wrecked me. And it's like, I'm not even part of this whole equation. I'm not living, I'm, I'm not going to live in a house with a bad foundation and just renovate it. I'm going to live in this house. Now, this is the twisted version, and I'm bringing this up because of what's happening on Sunday. Because the revelation that he gave me was that it would be easier to get a new house than to renovate his house. This is a different this, you're, there are some things that are, you are absolutely supposed to divest. You are absolutely supposed to say, that is my old life. I am a new creation in Christ. I'm not a renewed creation in Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. But then there's some aspects when you go back to the original, when you start looking at the old versus the new, what we've done is said, how about we just and buy a new house because that would be easier. Right. This so, was a house that was built by Judaism, this house. But they said, we don't want any part of that. We're going to build a new house. This house is where the Protestants live, in this house that's been renovated, but not totally changed. Built by Hebrews. But what Christianity has done is said, Let's just get rid of the old and build a new house, which is where that revelation came for me, that it's harder to make renovations in my heart as I'm having to learn how to be caused to walk in that original house because it was easier for me to be like, let's just get rid of that thing and let's get something new and I'll just build it to my specs, my desires, the way that I want it. When he's like, no, I had a house. It's my specs, my desires. I'm super specific. You need to learn to live in that house. Does that, I just wanted to make sure that I said that because that this is a different concept because this is false. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Until you explained the Spanish, I, I, then I was like, all right, I get it. <laughs> the, the emphasis wasn't the African part. The emphasis was that this is for, the protest is against this. If you're not this, then there's no need to protest. <laughs> right. 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 But does this help to like just shift your mind into a certain place to be able to read this the way it's supposed to be read? Right? If you're if you're consuming the word in this house, you're gonna consume it a certain way because it's been filtered a certain way. Amen. Coming up. There was one oh you're done. There was one uh thing that I brought up last week that I wanted to that I'm since we have a little bit of time, I'll just bring up again. Um, just something to wrestle through because I know that one of the questions has been, well, we don't have to do all of them. We only have to do the top 10, right? That's been a question. Um, and I talked a lot about this, which you'll have to listen to the podcast about what a ketuvah is. 
and what a marriage covenant is and what the t what the actual tablets even were was not five commandments on this side and five commandments on this side but it was the commandments on this side and the exact same commandments on the other side because it was a promise between two parties building a covenant which meant Yahweh and his people so it was a ketuvah it was a marriage ceremony uh, Shavuot is not a birthday party it's a it's an anniversary so I say that because this is where get remember I'm going to start with the word that he gave when he started he said be prepared and this is how you wrestle so if your question is, is, well, I'm pretty sure we don't have to do any of them except for the top 10, then what? Then you have to go back to what Yeshua said. When Yeshua was walking in his ministry, there was an argument, and you can find it in the scriptures, and they asked him which law is the most important. And he blurts out, he doesn't say you only have to follow two, and these are the only ones you have to follow. That would be a really wide road if the only thing you had to follow was love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, right? And then love your neighbor, which, by the way, is quoting what he knew, which is Torah, which is in Deuteronomy, okay? So the first most important is love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might because, anyways, I'm just going to stop there. Second commandment is, or the second, the second law that's the most important is that you need to love your neighbor as yourself, Right? Yes? Yeshua said that. Okay. Love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength is basically law number one. But it's expanded on later on in Deuteronomy. Where in the top ten commandments is love your neighbor? It's not. So when you start to see those things... You'll wrestle your concepts through that if you only have to obey the top 10 and none of the other ones, then why would Yeshua himself say the second most important law is, I don't know what number it is, but let's just say it's number 38. It's in Deuteronomy. It's definitely not the top 10, but he says that that's the most important. So it just messes with your mind because you have this concept from Bible study, the two tablets which is an interesting concept anyways, because if he did away with it, why are we even teaching about that? But then, it, then, it, then to make it make sense that you had a Bible study about it, or not a Bible study, but children's, a children's thing, in order to make it make sense, then it was like, okay, well, then that's relevant, but nothing else. But then what do you do with Yeshua's words that said that there was another whole different law outside of the top 10 that, were important, that was the most important to follow? Then you fast forward into Acts 15, and why would his disciples say, well, here's the top four. Here's another three. Forget about the other ones. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, there are four, four things. One, you don't have to, and top three you do, which is don't eat something that's been strangled, and uh, don't idol worship, and don't, what was the other one? Idol don't worship. engage with prostitutes don't, don't, yeah. in the temple. Yeah. Well, that's pretty easy. Right? So then it's like then you have to then you have to start figuring this stuff out. Well then what then what are we so then do I follow Paul in Galatians? Like where's your template is what I'm saying. You can you can interpret I mean I've had you can interpret Galatians a million different ways. I mean you can come up with a hundred million sermons 
out of one thing in Romans. I mean, Romans, I mean, you would, if you don't, we're going to get there. But if you don't understand Paul, he is schizophrenic in Romans. He follows right after David. In one paragraph, Paul says, you do not have to obey the law. You are not under that. And three sentences later, he says, you will be blessed to follow the law. We're going to dive into that. We're going to figure that out. My point is, is that if we don't understand this, what are we following? What rules and regulations and what, uh, my question again, which might be super confrontational is what, what makes you saved? That's a hard question, especially when you've been in it for 400 years. But I, but I want to know that now. I don't want to figure that out when he was like, you did this, 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 in this some name. And I don't know you. And that isn't to like, I know that that can kind of seem like, how dare you? But wouldn't you rather me, little old me, ask you that question now than to have to deal with the reality of that question then? I, I would rather provoke you to irritation now to say, could it be that he might not know you so that I can equip you so that when he does confront you, that he will actually know you? But it's, it's that happiness. Don't you, don't you question me. I've been a Christian for 500 years. Don't you, don't you dare question my belief system. Hey, I... I would rather rile you up and make you question everything, and I would rather at the end be wrong than to just try to create a bunch of happy people and then find out that we're wrong later. So, because that that scripture is real. I mean, he says that that's going to happen. And if you read Revelations, it definitely does. We haven't even gotten into Revelations, and it's scary. I mean, scary good. My point in saying that is it should make you hungry. That's why it's okay to say, I don't know. Let it make you hungry to say, am I saved? Isn't that a powerful question? Am I saved? What is salvation? And did it get, did I, did I make the cut at that altar call? Let me say this. I'm not asking you to ask yourself that one time. I wake up with that question. I go to bed with that question. I dream that question. Not out of a place of fear. Am I, am I saved? Not out of that. But what is salvation? Wait, I know. Right? I mean, how many, how many answers if I asked you guys right now, what is salvation? How many answers would come out? Salvation is one word. I've taught on this before, but this word is in the Old Testament. Yeshua. This word is in the Old Testament. It's at the splitting of the sea. When Moshe says, look forward, your Yeshua is nigh. And then he has a son that calls him salvation. So then my question is, am I saved? It's this concept of an action word. Have I 
Did I, did I say a prayer? Did I do this? Did I, versus, am I, okay. The question is, are you saved? Are you Yeshua? And Constantine, moving forward into the Christian church, I believe has pushed you down to never make you a co-heir. Don't you ever make yourself in equal status with that man. It's pushed you into a place that is not allowing you to ask that question, am I Yeshua? Right? Which is a crazy question, but if you think about it, I mean, Paul says, you are now the temple. Where is he living? The question is, is is he on the inside? And I would say, at least from my story, that when I was uh, walking out salvation a certain way, I was probably in rabbinical law. You can't call it that. It would be pastoral law. It was whether or not I went on Sunday morning. It was whether or not I abided by these rules. It was whether or not I spoke in tongues. It was whether or not I prayed uh, hard enough. It was whether or not I went to Bible study and... uh, prayer meetings and you know it was based on these things that would cause me to believe that I was that I was in a certain status not am I Yeshua living a transformed life from the inside out versus wanting to live a transformed life from the outside in trying to do all the right things and that's what's so crazy about this is because that's what it was and now when we give out the, the case for the instructions, now we're, we're filtering it through that lens that I have to do all these things when that's not the heart of what he tore down in us in the first place. That it's supposed to be coming from the inside out because it's written on our hearts. But our jobs are to unlock what's been written on your scroll because there is an enemy There is Hasatan that does not want you to remember what was written. There is another uh, dimension out there. There is another entity. That's why we went over it is finished last week and what that means. Trying to stop you from what's written on your heart. Well, if I come in and I just say, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, then you're just operating the exact same way and you haven't unlocked anything. Our role is to unlock what's on the inside to remember where you came from, what's written on your heart. Not There are some things written on your scroll, and it is not because you said a prayer with a pastor. There are some things that you said yes to before the foundation of the earth, and it has nothing to do with anything except stepping into a place of remembering what he has said remembering whose you belong to remembering what house you came from the moment you were born on this earth the enemy has been after your life for you to forget to forget to forget to forget because if you remember isn't that much different gospel that you just have to remember then you need to do this. I need to preach so that the drug addict will get free. Well, not even the drug addict because we kicked him out. The already, my job is to preach the already righteous people that said a salvation prayer that are fully perfect and fully saved need to hear it again. 
versus what happened all week long to cause you to forget. That it's not something you obtain, it's something you already have. You can't get more married, but you can forget what it looks like. You can forget what it costs you. You can forget what it means. So then we're here to remind you of what covenant is. Amen. Any questions since we're here on Acts 15? Or anything that didn't make sense or another question about what you've known or read? Regina? We follow all of them, so he would never teach. You only have to obey some. We don't, but the temple was uh, demolished after he died. The only reason why we don't obey the sacrificial laws is because we can't. So those are void because there is no temple. The only reason why I say that is because in Revelations, there will be one again. And so we're going to understand that that's going to be part of Judaism, um, it's kind of another whole teaching, but that's going to be, that's, that's, that's the part of the other half of our people that are going to be able to find the Messiah. Where Christians will say that's the Antichrist, but in reality, it's going to be part of his story. But currently, we're not able to follow those laws because there is no temple. So Yeshua wouldn't Part of, part, to, part of to answer your question is Yeshua wasn't concerned about what to follow and what not to follow, number one, because it wasn't a debate at that time. He was Torah observant. He, what, he is the law. He was the law. He, didn't, he, he is the word, and he was, he, only, he was Torah observant and did all of those things. So he wouldn't, it wasn't a concept to, to teach his disciples to have to wrestle through something he was already doing by example. I mean, and, and, and when you understand the Torah, you'll understand why he flipped tables. You'll understand his lifestyle. Kind of like when we were talking about the woman with um, touching his garment. It wasn't his jeans. It was his talit and what it meant. You know, just to kind of go back to that, because we don't, we've never been taught what the Torah is, we forget what it meant for that woman to leave her house and what happened when he restored her back to a position when he called her daughter. Because nobody is allowed to touch your tallit unless your family. So she broke a law when she grabbed his tallit. And that's why he said, I felt something. And so then when he turned to her and the first word he said was daughter was because he was, he was, he was allowing her to not have broken the law. So there's a lot of things that we don't necessarily know that he did teach on, but we're not aware that he was doing that because we don't know what the law was, but it wasn't necessarily something he'd have to sit down and do what we're doing right now because they didn't, they didn't break away from that. He did confront rabbinical law, which is the oral law and the stuff that he was talking about, the customs of man to try to have people walk a certain way, but that wasn't against Torah, it was against rabbinical law. Does that kind of answer your question? So like we would normally, a lot of people would normally assume that there was a debate during biblical times whether the law after Yeshua applied or not. 
But that, like she just said, that was never, that was never the debate. Just like Acts 15, Yeshua was the Torah. So when he came up against people with volumes of, of uh, man-made laws, right? He, he consists of the 613 written Torah laws from Yahweh, from the Father. But then you have oral tradition that added volumes upon volumes upon volumes of additional laws. And that's what he, that was always the, that's what they were coming up against all the time. And that's also why we want to get into Pauline theology, because Paul was a follower of Torah, but it gets confusing because this, you guys remember when I taught on this? This is Torah and everything that Yeshua was breaking down, like flipping tables and speaking to the Sadducees was because he was, he came to get rid of this, but not that, but because English just English alone decided to say that this, this is Mish, um, Mishnah, the Halakha, Halakha, Talmud's in there. I'm not doing them in order. All, Eng, okay, Talmud, English, law. Halakha, Halakha, law. The M1, law. Torah, Torah law. law. So when Paul's writing, it gets confusing because in English, all of this is law. So he did away with this law. He did not do away with this. So then we then interpret that, that that must mean we don't have to do any of it. All I'm saying is, is then where's our instructions? Then what do we go by? Paul? If you can't even understand Paul because of English, I don't know if I want to be following Paul. As the foundation, I absolutely want to follow Paul. But you have to understand the foundation. Why was he? It's just the same thing. How can you follow Yeshua if you don't know his foundation? He's the one that said, I only do what I see my father doing. As the example I've given, why would, why? One of the examples that I gave last week was, um, my kids get irritated because I always use Jalen as an example. So I'm going to flip it up. Kaya. Sydney pointed you out. Firstborn girl. And I speak into her about purity and waiting until marriage. Okay? She's the elder. Why would she wait till marriage and then turn to her little sister Anaya and Rena and be like, I did it for you. So that you don't have to be under the thumb of a dad who's horrible teaching you stuff like you can't even obey it so hard you can't even obey it and I did it so you don't have to so go ahead and have sex before marriage Yeshua said I did not this is Kaya I did not do all of that instructions. Follow it to a T. I didn't come to do away with all of what they've given us. I did it so that you can. I did it so that you can be empowered, that if I can do it, you can do it. That 
the problem, is we've been taught that, that the elder has come in to say, I came here to save you from big bad dad. And dad's over here like, are you kidding me right now? What, what, kind, of, what, kind, of, what kind of doctrine is that crap? I am a good, good father. But we've been told in the Old Testament, he's a mean, mean dad. And Yeshua came to save you from that mean thing. So now you're completely separated from Yahweh when Yeshua is Yahweh. Kaya is him. It wouldn't make any sense for her to raise up a generation to be like, let me, let me sway you away from the kingdom's instructions. But she would say, listen to this. She would say, you know your friends that keep putting on you that you need to dress a certain way in order to walk free? You know your friends that say you need to have your hair a certain way? Your hair is just too puffy. You know your friends who say that to you? I am following those instructions so that you don't have to listen to your friends telling you crap that doesn't matter. Because that's not what my father said. That's a, cra that's a cool interpretation, but it's not his heart. So I came here to do away with all that stuff. But you stay pure. But your hair, you do whatever you want. Does that make sense? So Regina, in this, so when you look in the word, every, every time it says law, it says nomos. In the renewed covenant in the Greek, all this is considered nomos. In the, in the Hebrew, the law is the Torah. It's just this, right? The, the oral tradition, all these rings were so interwoven. It was so oppressive and interwoven that the Pharisees, anybody who confronted it would have a hard time distinguishing what's the actual Torah and what's the rest of it. If anybody went up against any of these outer laws, a Pharisee or a rabbi would say, you, well, you've done away with the whole thing. You violated the whole thing. When Yeshua was coming to make that distinction that it's just this. So does that, does that help answer? Like when Yeshua was, he was, there was no debate about whether this is valid or not. There was no debate about throwing this out or it's no longer valid. The debate was what, what's legitimate and what's not. Right? Like, what's, think of a law that a, a... It's like when, when, so Paul would be confronted by Pharisees and they would, they would call him out on violating the law, right? They're talking about these things. He was violating these things. And that's why Paul said, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees and I've never violated the law. He was talking about Torah. He was saying, I've never violated the law. They were telling him he violated the law because their, the context was oral tradition. But they considered oral law just the same as written law. 
if not higher. In Jewish tradition, they'll say that on Mount Sinai, Moshe received the oral law. All of this was received on Mount Sinai. That's the, pers- that's the belief. So if you violate this, you violate the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But that's why Paul said, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I've never violated the law. He's talking about the Torah. So the, the whole, when you talk about Yeshua and why, like, there's one Torah. There's not sections of, you can't break it up into sections, right? But there are things that don't apply. There are things that apply to, to a woman, but not a man. There's things that don't apply because the temple no longer exists, right? So we just have to, we have to reconcile that. But first we have to reconcile Matthew 5, right? What did Yeshua say? And if he did say that he came to fulfill it, and that no, not even the smallest part of the law is going to go away until heaven and earth passes away. We have to reconcile that. Okay, the law, like it's here for us to follow in his footsteps, right? But then, then we can figure out all the other questions. Does that make sense? sure contextually if they like would have just known that or not I'm not sure well it's hard to know where certain things came from so they didn't receive him as the messiah because they thought he was going to be a king in the way that they saw so it, it gets really good when you start learning about some of this stuff because if we know why he was even crucified I mean, it's kind of like a concept, right? I mean, we understand that, right? He's our savior, so of course he was crucified. But if you understand why he was called out and what it was that he broke that caused him to do that. And I I feel like there's like this huge like revelation that's coming, so I'm just going to write it down. But his crucifixion, and I think I talked about it last week, his crucifixion came because he said, I... And I don't know how exactly he said it, but I and he are one. So he was basically saying, I am God. Well, what did I just say when I said that the question should be, (laughs) and who's crucifying that revelation? Just something to like get hungry about. Another reason why they had a hard time seeing him as the Messiah is because if you go back to the divorce, which we'll get into, so a lot of people think the laws for Jews because they were so obedient that they were characterized by being obedient to the law so much so that people think it's Jewish, right? Or people think the feasts are Jewish because they were obedient and they safeguarded and they honored the feast. So people think, oh, that's just Jewish, Right? All these oral traditions, if you read about rabbinic tradition, they'll call these fences. They put up fences around the Torah, right? They put up all these fences. They fortified the Torah to safeguard it, right? Their heart was good. We're going to safeguard this because we're supposed to honor it. Well, when Yeshua came and he started violating, he started breaking, kicking down fences right? Ministry of reconciliation, dividing walls of hostility. He put his hand on it and tore these fences down. Well, what's that going to feel like to them? 
How can, how can he be the Messiah? He's violating the Torah, right? He's violating the law because they considered their oral tradition was handed down just like this was. So to them, this is all the law. This is all valid. So when he came and he started violating it, they're like, how can you be the Messiah? And the powerful thing for us to begin to understand what was happening is as he was violating man's tradition, founded in what they thought was right, which 2,000 years later, now we're prophesying in tabernacles, he's going to start coming in and he's going to start breaking some of our Christian traditions to get at the heart of the Father's instructions. How dare you say you're the Messiah? It's my Christmas. It's the nativity scene. It is his birthday. Or 500 years of, it took us 500 years to renovate this house. And he's like, demolish it, demo it. Took us 500 years, right? It's going to be like, who, what? This can't be right. But you can feel that. So you, I mean, the, I say that to, to build, to understand why would, because anti-Semitism will say they missed it. That's my Messiah. I wouldn't have missed it. Would you have? Because when your traditions get knocked down, it messes you up, which is why they wanted to kill him, why they wanted to crucify him, because he was knocking down the things that they had been safeguarding and following and honored for. And he was saying he was a Jew. So it would be like Yeshua coming back and saying, I'm a Christian, walking completely Hebraic, not doing anything Christians are doing. And we're over here saying that's the Antichrist. And he's like, no, I... Right? I mean, that's ultimate. That's what. That's what was happening because he he said, like, I'm, "I'm the, the king the, of the Jews." I'm the king of the Christians. <laughs> Hopefully, that answers your question. Unless there was like any dying questions, go for it. Yes and yes. Yes. Just like us, right? You know, you're doing, I mean, on October 31st, I was the biggest Reformation cheerleader because <laughs> I was fighting Halloween. So I was like, Reformation. And then I realized I probably should have been doing Halloween. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yes, I think yes. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> well, liken, liken that to 400 years in Egypt and right. generation to generation, you're just, you're part of a, of an environment and a context and you don't know anything else. Yeah. And don't forget that Egypt was good. They went to Egypt because of famine. Like it wasn't, it, they just stayed too long. So when he begins to move and he begins to breathe, this isn't something just for kingdom heirs. This is the remnant. There are so many people waking up and coming alive. I have never met so many groups just through Facebook that are called Torah observant Christians. I don't like that title, but it's fascinating because I'm like, we're not alone. It's, it's, it's people that are beginning to understand that we've been, he's blowing on some things. The best way to explain it would be in the, in the um, uh, Pentecostal world would be like, he's, uh, what's the words we used to use? He's reviving people. There's a revival breaking out, and we deem that as the churches are going to be filled, and people are going to begin to worship. 
I just am saying that it's a little bit different. There's a revival that's beginning to blow through, but we're reviving in some original things and we're remembering who we were, but we're not, we are not alone in this. And there is a strong remnant, which is why it gets so powerful to then to begin to read revelations where it does say those that enter the kingdom will know my name and obey my commands and I'm looking for the one new man that understands me and my father. And the only way you can get both father and elder is when Ruach can raise a family. (laughs) I mean, I'm using that. I mean, I'm not saying I'm Ruach. I'm just saying like as an example of what he did so radically when we had no idea when he said, can you just raise a family and stop building a church? Yes, sir. What? Why? And then when people were like, remember, we were, uh, we were Tanya and Justin. We were your friend. And then we came to became pastors. Okay, they have some authority. All right. And then it was like, okay, can you stop doing church? All right, well, we should probably stop doing the pastor thing. Oh, apostles have authority. So we're going to shift this because we're going to demolish some things because apostles like to demolish things. I'm definitely apostolic at heart. And so we just demolish some things. And then he was like, now your mom. And you guys have had to go through all those transitions, but you, can you see what Yahweh was doing? Can, can you, can you, can you love them through the muck? Now that they've gotten some healing, can you kind of just put some things in order? Apostles put things in order. Pastors put Band-Aids on things. They're needed. It's powerful. It's a gift. But can you see what he's done to us? Let me, let me love them through some wounds. Now, now that they're healed enough, can we put some things in order? And then he was like, now that things are in order, can we have family? And stop building a business and stop building a church. And so now we're walking as a family. Why? Why family? Why is family the foundation to the entire gospel? Right? I mean, just think about what I just did. The father and the elder work together. And in order to understand what he did and what he did, Ruach is the one that brings conviction and nurtures and loves and raises. Amen? So that's why he moved us into a family. We didn't know. We had no idea that family was going to bring us back to the original intent. I just thought original intent meant, like, remember who you are. You're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's crazy is, like, some of the most profound prophetic words that have been spoken over our life. It wasn't, because people say, well, like, oh, yeah, you pastor a church. Like, where'd you go to school? Like, seminary, all that kind of stuff. And, like, we never got any prophetic words, like, Yahweh's calling you to pastor or calling you to be an apostle, like never. It was the father's calling you father and a mother to many, like by people independent of each other in totally different countries. Right? It never had anything to do with church government or like Christian hierarchy or anything like that. 